Hello and welcome back to Oral Valley Catholic. This is Father John Arnold. So we're at the beginning of Ordinary Time and we start with a reading from 1 Corinthians. The church splits up the, the Paul's letter to the first letter to the Corinthians over all three liturgical years, uh, cycle A, cycle B, cycle C. And we're in liturgical year A. What that means is we're gonna have the beginning part of 1 Corinthians. So today I'm gonna talk about the first generation of Christian believers, St. Paul's role in that community of believers, and how it reflects the gospel of St. John, especially chapter one in the new creation and then what that might mean for us as 21st century believers. So hang on. And so we're in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians at the very beginning, uh, chapter one, verses one to three, and here's what it says. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and her brother Sosthenes, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the first, that's the second reading for this first, second Sunday of ordinary time. And there's a couple of things I wanna point out. First, what's it mean to be an apostle? An apostolos literally means one who is sent. And it's very close to the, to the word angelos, which means messenger. And so, for instance, in, in the Gospel of Mark, where the, the Gospel says, quotes uh, from Exodus, I think, 23, I'll send my messenger before you. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, that's the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word angelos is used to mean both messenger and angel as, as we think about angels. But apostles are also like those messengers. And so when God sends his messengers out into the world, um, it's an angel when it's the angel Gabriel, but it's also the apostles, St. Peter. They all carry the authority of God when they carry that message forward. Now, as to the date of composition of 1 Corinthians, most scripture scholars put it about 20 years after the resurrection, on the year 56 AD. And there's interior evidence in 1 Corinthians which, which uh, would support that dating, uh, partly because some of the people that he meets, Priscilla and Aquila, for instance, which are mentioned in 1 Corinthians and in Acts of the Apostles, they left Rome because of the persecution of Claudius, who was the emperor that followed Caligula, but was just before Nero, the last of the Julii-Claudii uh, emperors. And so we know when Claudius reigned, and he reigned in the mid-50s, so Paul's letter couldn't be before that. Um, the audience is the people at Corinth. Now, Corinth is a really interesting city because it figures largely into Greek history. Uh, the Peloponnesian War, which was a fight basically between Athens and its allies, the Dalian League, and Sparta and its allies, which is called the Peloponnesian League, uh, Corinth is on, an, is on an isthmus that separates 
the uh, Athenians from the uh, Spartan and their allies. So they were basically on the front line for that and fierce enemies of the Athenians. And so they were on the winning side in that uh, war, which went on for a couple of decades and became a very prominent city. And in fact, it was the very last city that was conquered by the Romans when the Romans conquered uh, conquered Greece. Why is Corinth an important city? Well, an isthmus is like Panama, this narrow strip of land which uh, connects these two larger bodies of land. In the case of Panama, it's North and South America. In the case of Corinth, it's the uh, Peloponnesus Peninsula and the Achaean uh, Peninsula. Uh, one where Athens is, the other where Sparta is. And since it's an isthmus, it's just like Panama. The reason they put that canal through Panama is because it was easier to cover the, like 20 miles or something is all the width of Panama. But Corinth is, I think, even thinner than that. And so in ancient times, it was an important seaport because it separated the larger Mediterranean Ocean from the, the part of the sea that goes in between the Achaean and the Peloponnesian Peninsula. So instead of having to sail all the way around the Peloponnesian Peninsula, you could pull your ship up to Corinth and they would either transfer your cargo for you to another ship that plied the inland sea or they would dra apparently drag your ship over um, the, the isthmus so you could launch it into the next sea, although I don't know how efficient that is. Since then, they built a canal through Corinth, but that's more of a modern project. The Romans, I think, started it, but it hasn't been a very successful project. But what that means, the point of this history of the Corinthians, what the Corinthians do for a living, it says a lot about the community that um, that St. Paul walks into, because he left Athens to come to Corinth. They're both now dominated by the Romans, but they have this ancient enmity. And so by the time Paul gets to Corinth, he has a bit of a reputation. Since Corinth is a sea, uh, a seaport, it has a reputation throughout Greece, at least maybe the whole Mediterranean world, uh, for immorality, especially sexual immorality. And that's going to play a large role in how Paul preaches to the Corinthians. Um, there was uh, one ancient Greek writer, Aelius Aristides, who said, uh, Corinth chains all men with pleasures, and all men are equally inflamed by it. It's clearly the city of Aphrodite. <clears throat> and in fact, Corinth, the name Corinth, when it, I'll just say it in an anglicized version, if you're Corinthian, it means you're engaging in uh, aberrant sexual behavior. Uh, so it became kind of slang in the ancient world. And so this is the place where St. Paul first preaches successfully to the Greeks. I say successfully because he was kicked out of Philippi. Uh, Thessalonica was turned out they were very supportive of him. He wrote two letters to Thessalonica, but he had struggles there. Athens, he was tried in front of the Areopagus, which is one of the most famous scenes about his trial in front of the judges of Athens. But Corinth, he writes two of the most important letters that are in the New Testament, First and Second Corinthians. And so the part that we had from the letter to the Corinthians is just the, o the opening part 
where he reminds the people of Corinth that he is an apostle. He's been set with authority and power, like an angelos, an angel, and that there is a new creation afoot, which I'm going to talk about in a minute, which has changed Corinth. But other preachers have followed in and confused the Corinthians. And so he's going to deal with some uh, confusion in the church that has caused splits amongst the Corinthians. See if any of these might sound like modern problems. In First um, Corinthians chapters 1 to 2, he's going to talk about divisions and schism within the church. I belong to Peter. I belong to Apollos. I belong to Paul. I belong to Christ. Like four different ways about thinking of yourself as a Christian. And Paul's going to address those. Then he's going to talk a lot about sexual immorality, especially incest, whether it's by consanguinity, that is, your blood relations, or affinity, uh, you're marrying your stepmother. But sexual immorality is a huge struggle for the Corinthians. Um, lawsuits between believers are just fighting things out in the law courts because they can't resolve them uh, in their parish. And then he's going to talk about marriage, divorce and remarriage, uh, why he thinks celibacy is better, but why the Lord talked about uh, divorce. Then he's going to talk about uh, idol worship. You're eating meat sacrificed to, to Zeus or Aphrodite, and you're eating the bread and the wine at Mass. You can't eat at both tables. You have to make a choice. Um, and so this leads to liturgical disorder. And it's confusions about people's roles within the church. So men and women are fighting about who's in control. And then some people claim to have glossalia, that is charismatic tongues. And then at the end, the people believe platonically that you survive death, but as a disembodied spirit. That really was the Greek belief. And it comes from Plato and Plotinus. But Paul, as you know, says, boy, if Jesus isn't risen from the dead, uh, what hope do we have? So just think about why 1 Corinthians is like our modern world. Uh, a divided church, sexual morality, uh, struggles and fights amongst believers, not on the internet yet, but in the public sphere, then uh, problems with marriage and divorce and remarriage and what it means, uh, idol worship, what's the most important thing in your life, uh, and then uh, people claiming different kinds of authorities, liturgical uh, fights like between Latin and English uh, uh, language masses or Spanish masses, and then um, maybe just, just a lack of faith in who Jesus is. And so St. Paul wanted to talk about the new creation. This was his response to all of this, that we're in this transition time. In ancient Judaism, they believed in this world and the world to come, especially the Pharisees. And this is a late development in uh, the Old Testament world. But the Pharisees, you know, believed in the resurrection of the dead. And there's intimations of that go back to the prophets and even earlier in that, according to Jesus, who uh, really thinks like the Pharisees, but think the Pharisees just have the wrong approach. And so he's very critical of the Pharisees in his life. But that St. Paul says that that vision where we're in this world and a new world is coming that replaces this world is inadequate, not completely wrong, but misleading. What he says about it is that uh, the new creation is already amongst us. So imagine this. 
in the Hebraic world, make a circle, call it the Old Testament understanding of this world, and then put a circle next to it that says the Old Testament understanding of the world that will come after the destruction of this world. If you're thinking like that, you're not thinking like St. Paul. Instead, to think like St. Paul, do this. Take that first circle and that second circle about this world, the old creation, and the world to come, that is the new creation, overlap them. And then in that space where those two circles overlap, just jot in, in Christ. That is, this time when we're already living in the resurrection. We're baptized, we're confirmed, we receive the Eucharist. The world to come is already a part of our lives. And so if you believe that you're not really part of the old creation, but you're transitioning into the new creation, and that's what your Christian life is today as you're listening to this podcast, then you're thinking like St. Paul. And that understanding isn't just in 1 Corinthians. It's also in Romans chapter 8. So you probably remember this passage from Romans chapter 8. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. That's Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 23. And so St. Paul is saying, we Christians baptized into Christ, we are the very first sign of the redemption of all of the created world. Animals, vegetables, the oceans, the sun and the moon. But we're the first part of it because it's all going to be transformed. And that's picked up in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 7 to 8, which will be right after the passage I read you from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And here's how St. Paul refers to it in 1 Corinthians. Quote, you're not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end so that you may be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, end quote. And so you're this new creation as you're waiting for the revealing of the completion of Christ subjecting all things to himself. So as you're thinking through all the struggles of being a Catholic here in the early part of the 21st century, and you look at the sexual immorality in the world, the confusion in marriage. You look at the confusion in the church and arguing in the church. All of the issues that St. Paul is dealing with in his first letter to the Corinthians, what he's saying to you is you're part of the new creation, that it's a struggle. It's like a woman in labor. And yes, it's difficult. But if you pay attention, something is being revealed in you and you ought to take notice of it today. And so the gospel for the first week, the second week of ordinary time, following this letter from 1 Corinthians, is the first chapter of John. And I want to tell you that what's in the first chapter of John 
is exactly what I was telling you St. Paul is saying about the old and the new creation. So let's talk briefly about that first chapter and what it means. And so that understanding of the new creation is a fundamental theme of Paul's writings. It's in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, it's in Galatians, it's in Romans. The idea that through the sacraments, through the preaching of Christ, rooted in the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, uh, we have moved from being part of the old world into the world to come. But it's like these overlapping realities that we live in. And I think that is something true about the experience of faith. But it's not just St. Paul that talks about it. The gospel for this second Sunday of ordinary time is from the Gospel of John. Do you remember how I said in the liturgical year that the church spreads out 1 Corinthians over all three liturgical years, A, B, and C, and they start all three liturgical years with 1 Corinthians? It's because it's such a fundamental text in Paul's pastoral preaching. But it reflects what's in all four Gospels, especially in the Gospel of John. And in all three liturgical years, just like we start with 1 Corinthians, we start with the Gospel of John in all three liturgical years. Why? Because this understanding of the new creation is rooted in the, in the Gospels as much as it's rooted in Paul's preaching. Um, and it's this underlying reality of the sacraments which are water and oil, bread and wine, that are part of the old creation, but also are the harbinger of the creation to come. John being the most sacramental of the Gospels, and Paul, especially in 1 Corinthians and the Eucharist, are very attentive to baptism, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and confirmation in Eucharist. So let's take a moment and let's talk about John. So... Remember how John's gospel starts. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that is about Jesus' preexistence. Um, and it's the early church struggling with Jesus being the Son of God. That going from an understanding of monotheism as anthropomorphic, that God is like one person, like we're one person, to the oneness of God, that is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God, and that uh, Christ is that preexistent second person of the Holy Trinity uh, present in historical, in historical times. That's Christmas, the incarnation, everything we just uh, celebrated. And so chapters, ver chapter one, verses one through 18 of John is all about this mystery of the word became flesh, and then it turns to historic times, which scripture scholars would call the book of signs. What does Jesus do that is a sign of a deeper sacramental reality? And so the very first day in John's gospel, because John's gospel is taking that first chapter of Genesis and using that as the pattern for the recreation of the world, just like St. Paul talks about it. 
And so the first day, John comes testifying, calling people to repent, saying, I'm a voice of one crying in the wilderness. And he says, I am baptizing uh, with water, but there's one after me that you do not recognize who will baptize with fire and the Holy Spirit. So, and that talking about recreation, why is John, the son of a priest, out at the river baptizing for the forgiveness of sins when forgiveness of sins under the old world, the Old Testament, was supposed to be in the temple up in Jerusalem? And so the locus of what the temple is supposed to have done has now changed in this first day, recreation. Then that leads where in verse 29 of, first, of John's first chapter, it says after John's preaching, it says the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold the Lamb of God. And remember, the lamb is what's sacrificed in the temple. So the, the place of sacrifice is now moving to this person who will be baptized. And remember, John and Jesus did not grow up together. They're relatives. But John does not know him in a natural way because John, according to Luke, was educated in the desert. Modern scripture scholars think that's probably with the Essenes. And clearly, Jesus from the other end of the country in Nazareth and so John claims that he has a mystical experience, and it's in the reading for this Sunday that he saw the Spirit, that the one who sent him says, on whomever you see the Spirit come down and remain, he's the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Now I have seen and testified that he is the Son of God. Now remember the temple is God's footstool. Now the Son is in the river Jordan. The locus of mercy has changed. That's the second day. Then in verse 35, it says, the next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. And so this is the third day as, John is, uh, as John's gospel is telling the story. And what happens? Jesus is putting together humanity. And what does he do? He calls uh, disciples who are disciples of the Gospel of John. And if you remember in the book of Genesis, after the fall of Adam and Eve, and we're now to chapter 4 in Genesis, where do the ripple effects of sin fall forward? It falls forward into Adam and Eve's children, Cain and Abel. Cain slays Abel. Brother kills brother. So now keep thinking about Genesis. Who are the first four disciples that Jesus calls? Simon, Peter, and Andrew, brothers. James and John, brothers. So if repentance of sin is dealing with the problem of the snake and the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, in the new Adam, what's the third day he's doing? He's putting together the enmity between these brothers um, and by calling these brothers to be his disciples. Um, it's the book of Genesis, chapter 1, then chapter, then verse, the fourth day, because it says, chapter, verse 43, the next day he decided to go to Galilee. And this is when he starts calling the rest of the disciples. So he calls Philip, Nathaniel, and then he is building his church. He is bringing together humanity. Because remember with Paul, we're like the leaders in God's work 
to call back creation. If we're the last act of creation in Genesis, the act of redeeming all of creation starts on that sixth day when we're created and works backwards. That's how Paul and John are thinking about recreation of the world. And so where am I going with this? Well, you probably have already figured it out. That's four days. And then you turn to chapter two of John, and here's what it says. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana. So let's stop and do the math. We've already gone through four days in the Gospel of John. John's preaching, John's recognition of Jesus the Messiah, John's telling his disciples to follow, Jesus calling more disciples. Those are the four days. And then it says, on the third day from that, so that takes you what? To the seventh day of creation, the day that God rests in the book of Genesis. But in the story of John's gospel, the seventh day, it's a wedding between God and his people. And remember the story of uh, uh, the wedding at Cana of Galilee. It says, on the third day, this is the seventh day of John telling the story, there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the wedding. When the wine ran short, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, just like the woman is called in the book of Genesis, how does your concern affect me? My hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servers, do whatever he tells you. So let's go to the end of the Gospel of John and just take this whole wedding because you already probably know that Jesus turns water into wine and it was the duty of the bridegroom in that first century Jewish weddings to pick up the bar tab. So when Jesus picks up the bar tab for the entire wedding, who's taking the place of the bridegroom? Jesus. God has come to marry his people. What does that look like? Go to the crucifixion. So who's at the foot of the cross? Mary and the disciple, the beloved disciple, the one who is part of uh, John's disciples on the third day. They're at the, at the foot of the cross. And you remember, Jesus says, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. Why is she mother to the, to the beloved disciple? Because of what happens in Cana of Galilee. And the mother said to the servers, you and I are servers, we're the diaconoi. We're called to be servants in the kingdom of God. And what's mom telling us? Do whatever he tells you. And where does it go? Jesus dies on the cross. Jesus is resurrected. The new creation is brought into being. He ascends to heaven. The new creation is drawing us all through our sacraments into this new world, this time of overlap that St. Paul talks about. And how do you know that? Do you remember in the Gospel of John, who's the first person to see Jesus risen from the dead? It's Mary Magdalene. And when she first sees Jesus, does she recognize him? The answer is no. Who does she think he is? Go and look at it. She thinks he's the gardener because now the image of God has been restored to the Garden of Eden and it's all being transformed by his work. So what's our duty? Our duty is to assist the gardener and transform this world by our lives into the life of grace, which is the world to come. So let's take time and wrap this all up in the final chapter of this episode 
of Oro Valley Catholic. Wow, that was a lot of scripture to make us a easy point or something you should believe in that in your baptism, your confirmation, and your reception of the Eucharist, you are being remade in the image of Christ. And Christ is the image of God in the world. And that your work is not just about your individual salvation, but it's about your families, your friends, it's how you take care of your body, it's how you take care of the world that you live in, because you are called to be part of this new creation. And it shoots all through Paul's preaching. And if you understand that, you have a baseline to understand um, all of Paul's uh, letters. And so when Paul is confronting 1 Corinthians with the sins of the modern age, sexual immorality, divisions, et cetera, et cetera, which I went through, uh, what are we called to do? Well, called to be faithful. First, in how it is that we live our lives. And then to be careful of the fights we allow ourselves to be sucked into. Um, God is in charge of this. This is God's new creation. We're not building the new creation, God is. We're not spectators, but we're involved in the creation because we've been called by grace. Um, but we should be careful of divisions. We should be careful of what we do with our bodies because this is all about participating in God's grace. So as you think in this new liturgical year, think about who you are and what you've been called to be. May God bless you and uh, stay tuned for more. Um, I'll see you next week. Of God.